0: Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a safer, freer, more prosperous place. I'm your host, Paul Matsko, and Will Duffield and I will be talking to two special guests today about the problem of congressional ignorance about tech policy. Now, we might disagree some about what should be done to fix that problem, and we'll get into that more in a second here. Uh, But I think we can all agree that several recent performances in congressional hearings on the tech industry have shown a real knowledge gap on the part of legislators. So we've brought in Zach Graves, the head of policy at the Lincoln Network. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thanks for having me on. And Daniel Schumann, the policy director of Demand Progress. Thanks for coming, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's talk about the problem first. Congressional ignorance about tech policy. Where where have you seen that crop up over the last let's let's say year or two? So there's been a couple of like
1: big high profile hearings that have sort of drawn popular attention to this. One was last year they had uh, hearings in both chambers with Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's CEO, and. You know, various clips and sound bites from this were pulled out, uh, you know, across late night show vignettes and the front page of the Washington Post and even international papers covered the sort of deep lack of technical literacy. Uh, and, you know, we saw this repeated a couple of times after that. They've, it's been a popular thing to drag tech CEOs before Congress over the last year or so. So, we had Jack Dorsey come. We had Google CEO Sundar Pichai, where they were getting into a spat with him about, uh, you know, what iPhones are doing. And he had to explain that yeah. they don't, they don't make those. It was <laughs> sort of an entertaining segment. But those of us who sort of watch these kinds of hearings professionally, uh, you know, the, the baseline level of technical depth is, is not very deep, typically it's not just sort of the big headline grabbing uh, hearings that that you know get popular attention It's a lot of you know more in the weeds you know run of the mill kind of stuff that happens where you just sort of see that there's not the sort of level of depth that you'd like to make good policy decisions and this, if you look historically, is the product of decades of significant institutional decline in Congress in terms of its total staffing numbers, but also in terms of how it's shifted resources around how internal incentives and rules have changed uh, within the institution.
0: So rather than highlighting, it's easy to to lampoon individual Congress people not knowing how to set up a Facebook account or asking about the phone being produced by the wrong manufacturer. But I mean, if I take what you're saying, it's it's more an issue of when it comes to crafting legislation or crafting uh, rules, um, the expertise is is missing there. When it so, a hearing's a hearing.
2: Um, there's the question of what hearings are about as well, the agenda-setting power and potentially its misuse. When you get a Congress that, because of a lack of expertise or subject matter knowledge is driven in its concerns by passing populist fears rather than perhaps longer time horizon questions of how we create the best environments for innovation in this country, it's not going to do much or what it does won't be useful.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll get this when we talk about... Uh, concerns about uh, anti-conservative bias. There's a lot of grandstanding that goes on, right? So it's a chance for sometimes even legislators who know better to make claims because it's a it's a soundbite on TV, right? Some of these are inherently political, and I mean the the
1: aforementioned Google hearing was at the end of the year after the election when the chamber was it was in the House. The chamber was going. They knew it was going to switch they weren't really trying to like create legislation. They were more trying to sort of stir up political talking points about the issue they were looking at. And, you know, you're always going to have some amount of these sort of politicized hearings, but you also have ones that are, you know, trying to like learn about a particular subject from a panel of like deep experts uh, or trying to sort of get towards, you know, major legacy kind of legislation. And in all of the above, I think you have challenges with having the right kind of resources and incentives in the institution to produce good policy outcomes.
3: Let me sort of hone in on that. So when it comes to legislating and when it comes to oversight, you get what you pay for. And what we've been doing is we've been paying less in terms of what we're willing to invest in Congress. Uh, There's a thousand fewer House committee staff than there was 25 years ago. Uh, GAO, which is the government's watchdog, which looks at waste, fraud, and abuse, there's 2,000 fewer people over there. And, um, you know, they talk about this with Dr. Coburn when he was in the Senate. He would talk about, like, for every dollar that you put into GAO, you save, you get, you save $100 in terms of waste. And this is sort of endemic, sort of across the system where, uh, there's this desire to engage in, uh, the politics of appearance. You know, Zach was talking about this as grandstanding, where it's like, well, we're going to cut government and we're going to start at home. And we're going to go. There was a, there was a fight over this just, uh, today in the appropriations committee where, you know, there was a fight over $29 million. Well, $29 million isn't nothing, but when you're looking at a $4.3 billion, uh, appropriation or, or, you know, $1.5 trillion, uh, I mean, it, it's nothing. And to, it, it's not worth the time that they spent to have the people in the room to pay for the staff, to pay for the lights, to have that conversation. Um, but the value is, well, we're going to fight over this little tiny thing so that we can symbolically show how we're trying to, uh, shrink government. But if you really want to shrink government, if that's your goal, you want to do it in the way that's right, which means that you have to understand the policy landscape. Right. You have to invest in the right places. You need to understand what you're doing because otherwise you're sort of cutting at things randomly. And what you're, you know, this is often talked about as, as the lobotomization of Congress. And what you're doing is you're making Congress stupid. And when you make Congress stupid, it means that the policies that come out are stupid, uh, and that is a that is a tremendous problem, uh, and, it, and it's an example of you know saving a penny to lose a dollar, and that's well, it, right. it
0: makes for nice headlines in the hometown paper, cut salaries, cut staff of Congress, uh, while ignoring, I mean, from a from a kind of a small government perspective, while ignoring the fact that. You might be passing bills that involve millions million, of dollars to, and you're saving a few hundred thousand by cu- cutting a staff or two.
3: That's right. One, one of my favorite sort of examples along these lines is like you'll have expert staff who get paid. They get paid well. They don't get paid great, um, but they're making billion dollar, helping to make billion dollar decisions. But we don't want to pay them a little bit more to keep them there so that they can keep working in the interest of the, of the members that they're supporting so that you can have someone who's totally green come in. And then help to make another billion-dollar decision. And it just doesn't make well, any sense. This
0: helps contribute to the revolving door between lobbying outfits. I mean, so if you don't have congressional staffers, and I think this is something I'll pitch to you, Will. If you don't have congressional staff with expertise, um, they're underpaid. So they, they spend time a year or two, and then they try to get into a better-paying Outs external gig, you end up relying, you're outsourcing that expertise to lobbying groups. Is that how the system works?
2: To an extent, yeah. I um, I I can't help but wonder though if some of this is a demand side problem as well. Hmm. When we talk about lobbying in these spaces, that compared to in in the past, especially on a whole national level, Congress is doing or doing through its engagement with various uh, executive branch agencies more, and therefore the incentive and the willingness to pay to influence that process is just so much greater than it had been in the past.
3: And therefore, even if we were to increase congressional salaries, could it keep up? Well, so, I mean, you have to look at people's incentives. You know, Why do people leave the hill? And there's studies on this. There are sort of two major reasons why they leave the hill. One is pay, so, you know, what happens is you hit 30 years old, right? And you don't want to live in that group house anymore. And maybe you've met that special someone and you simply can't make your life work in Washington, D.C., which is one of the most expensive places in the country, uh, based on that salary. So you look elsewhere. Uh, the second thing is that working in Congress is actually a fairly miserable experience. You can be working late at night. Uh, you don't have enough colleagues so that you get overworked. So, you know, no one's working like nine to five there. That's not a thing. Um, So you get burned out and it's much better to go someplace else where you can work half as hard and earn twice as much. When you look at the lobbying industry, just for federally registered lobbyists, we spend more on lobbying than we do on the entire legislative branch. And that includes the Capitol Police and the tours and all the other wonderful stuff. There is more than four and a half billion dollars spent on the lobbying industry aimed at the executive branch and the legislative branch, which is bigger than what we spend on everything having to do with Congress. And, uh, I mean, the point here is well taken, right? Uh, you know, there's a real question as to whether these decisions to be made at the federal level in the first place. There are instances of people engaging, trying to engage in regulatory capture through the legislative process. But when you look at Congress, that is often the place that can rein in what's actually happening inside the executive branch where the problems are much worse because the, the volume of the decisions that they make in the amount of money that they, they oversee is, is, uh, you know, so great. That uh, Congress can be the point where you can choke off the spigot, if that makes and sense. And the possibility for turnover is, yes. is
2: just institutionally greater. So if things are heading in, in the wrong direction or getting worse, you can at least hope that some uh, – uh, upswell or groundswell of uh, frustration with it can lead to tangible change through Congress more rapidly than other avenues.
3: That's right, and so, so some academics and other folks talk about this as sort of a principal-agent issue, right? Where Congress is the principal; it's the not you know not the principal like you know in high school, like the other kind of principal, uh, and its role is to make these policymaking decisions. This is where the people's perspectives go and are legitimized into policy. This is our democratic process. The executive branch are the agencies. They are the agencies in the principal-agent relationship. Their job is to carry out the will of Congress. But what we have now is more of a wag the dog scenario where the executive branch largely dominates and controls what happens in the federal space and Congress is more of an afterthought. And it shouldn't be that way. It should be the reverse. Policy should be generally set in Congress and the agencies should be implementing that.
2: As as well, this may be an easy, in a sense, place for Congress to rest, but it isn't a healthy one for our republic. Individual congressmen often can be seen as enjoying this scenario because it allows them to avoid making tough decisions, which might pose a problem the next time they're up for re-election. However, as a whole, our republic suffers when those decisions are simply passed on to unelected executive branch agents.
0: So you have a you have a situation where um, just for to contextualize this, where the number of executive orders. I mean, so when we talk about the increasing power of the administrative branch. Uh, and historians, presidential historians like to talk about the rise of the imperial presidency. There's a brief dip post-Watergate in the 70s, uh, kind of a retrenchment back towards Congress that's temporary, and we're marching back towards an imperial presidency today. What that means uh, in practical terms is that the administration, the administrative agencies have more and more rulemaking power that looks like what Congress does, but doesn't have to go through the legislative branch. It means that presidents have been issuing more and more executive orders over the last couple of decades. Which is a way of bypassing legislation. It's easier if the president can just say, well, by executive order, this is going to be the rule from now on. That's not how the system was designed, you know, 200 odd years ago. Um, but that's the way it's become. So do you see this as a as a shift then back towards kind of legis- legislative balance with
3: the executive branch? So, I mean, restoring funding for Congress is sort of one step on it. There, there's another piece, which is that they don't know what to do. There haven't been people in Congress in a very long time, generally speaking, who have the experience of being a strong legislative body, except in sort of narrow circumstances. You have to have the people. They have to have time there so they actually figure out what they're doing. And that time requires like, you know, experience to sort of gain that healthy distrust of how you're being played by the executive branch. And then they have to have the incentive to go and, and fix the problem, uh, or fix the set of problems. Uh, you know, right now there's, I don't know, 20,000 people on Capitol Hill. Maybe half, half of them are people who do policy related work. In the executive branch, there's millions, right? So, so the mismatch and disparity is, is significant. So when you talk about things like technology policy, uh, in the executive branch, you know, there's the Office of Science and Technology Policy. There are different components within uh, the different agencies that have significant expertise. In Congress, it's not really there, right? I mean, you have the Science and Technology Committee, which has a handful of staffers, and sometimes they know, sometimes something, and sometimes they don't. There was the Office of Technology Assessment that existed uh, for you know 20 or 30 years, and it was a great and deep source of expertise that informed the entire uh, public sphere as well as for Congress. Uh, And it was killed off in 1995, right when the internet and biotechnology and all of these great things were sort of uh, coming into existence.
1: And the original hearings around that explicitly talked about it in terms of like fact-checking what the agencies were saying and reining in the executive branch.
3: That's right. And and in fact, when you look at the history of congressional agencies, and I'm afraid that I'm probably boring to death all of our listeners out there, they were all created in response because you can't trust the executive branch. So you've got the Office of Management and Budget that does all this regulatory policy stuff. You can't trust their numbers. So we've got the Congressional Budget Office. You have the Office of Legal Counsel and the Department of Justice, the president's lawyers who keep coming up with trying to expand executive branch powers. And the counterweight is where I used to work, which is the American Law Division of the Congressional Research Service, who was supposed to give Congress an understanding of the legal issues uh, and their own sort of way of assessing those types of things. And when it came to science and technology policy, you had you know 30 million different entities inside the executive branch. And uh, the Office of Technology Assessment, as Zach had indicated, was intended to be that counterweight. And what we did, at least in that space, is we just dropped the counterweight off. Right? So executive branch, they have all the expertise. Let's listen to what they have to say. And we're not going to have a method of checking it and figuring things out for ourselves. And the consequence is what we've seen.
1: And as and as this you know capacity and and staffing and and policy expertise has declined, you you know you you've also seen sort of the size and scope of the federal government and the executive branch grow quite significantly, and the prominence of scientific and technical issues become much greater. Uh, you know the most valuable companies in the world are American tech companies right now, and beyond that, like scientific and technical innovation is like key to our economic growth and prosperity. And, you know, getting, you know, for instance, right now, there's a debate over, you know, federal privacy legislation, which people for a while thought they could do really, really fast to preempt this law that California did. That's bad for a number of reasons. Um, And it looks like they, they can't come together and agree even what the sort of scope of this is going to be, let alone like what the specifics are or what the trade offs are to different approaches and the cost of even just sort of delaying this kind of federal action in terms of economic value generated is tremendous and the cost of you know getting it miscalibrated is also potentially you know much greater than the small
0: few million dollars we're talking about for expertise though there is the the you know it is in the the natural interests of incumbent uh, players and even in the tech industry of incumbent tech companies to want clear rules. Though I think uh, at Building Tomorrow, we often have mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, clear rules can avoid this you know the patchwork problem where California passes privacy legislation that's different than what Illinois does. And having a, a level national playing field has advantages, but it also often plays to the benefits of the incumbents who shape those rules. Like, so you know, Tim Cook of Apple recently called for uh, you know, legislation, uh, that would have the net effect of probably entrenching the power of incumbent tech companies. And what what Absolutely. is the
2: uh, economic cost of not having privacy legislation now?
1: Well, it means everyone needs to comply with California as the new baseline standard and deal with the right of action that's coming along with it, and all of the billions of dollars that that may uh, cost. Yeah. Um, they're kind of the tail that wags the dog. And you're right. There's different scopes of like what we mean by privacy legislation. I think people like Tim Cook mean legislation that will make it hard for their incumbents that rely on selling, your, selling you ads, whereas they tend to not to. Um, but others talk about it just in terms of sort of baseline, you know, consistent standards and preempting what the bad yeah. stuff that the states are doing and... You know, my organization works a lot with sort of, you know, venture capital people and startups out in Silicon Valley. And
3: this is not just something that the big tech companies care about. And and this takes us back to the fundamental problem, which is that so I'm working for one of these big technology companies and I want to influence the process. And what do I do is I go pick off the senior councils for the majority and the minority. and I have them come and work for me Mm -hmm. so that the people who've got all the connections and who know how everything works are going to go back and now lobby on my behalf. For the people that they used to work with who don't know a whole lot about what's going on because they're not as senior. And they will go and they will shape the regulatory environment to the benefit of these giant companies or, or other folks who have the resources to do this type of thing. And you don't want that. You want to make sure that it's a competition of ideas, that everyone is able to fight through the best arguments. I mean, Congress is designed to be a debate process where you bring, it's a crucible where you bring together all the ideas, you burn off the nonsense. And what you end up with may reflect different ideological perspectives, but at least they're coherent and they're consistent and they reflect uh, uh, views and values that are that are real in the world. Uh, and you want that. So, you know, whether you think that the California approach to privacy legislation is right or wrong, you know, it, ca- it can't be what you have, like when we're seeing in the encryption debate. Uh, so Senator Feinstein, you know, has a faith-based encryption policy, right that you put a back door and only the the only the government's <laughs> right. gonna use it, and no right. one else is going to use it. yeah, right That is like nobody thinks that's how things work, but she thinks that's how things work, and there's no one there to help educate her.
0: Well, and to your point, it's kind of striking uh, uh, it's kind of striking that even with like California's privacy bill, even folks who favor a more um, uh, stricter kind of privacy regimen, there's actually a lot of uh, dissatisfaction with how that bill was drafted because there wasn't enough uh, tech expertise. So even folks who favor what the bill is trying to accomplish, are, are, many of them are disconcerted about this bill was not well-written, well written. Well, it, was, well it made. had typos and spelling errors and you – know. right. <laughs> <Yeah.
2: laughs> How do you then imagine something like a revived OTA hmm. influencing this process? What effect sure. would its presence have on mm-hmm. the way this debate would be conducted? So,
1: just like one, let me take one step back, if that's all right, to this sort of round, yeah. so sort of, sort of this context we're talking about. Um, I think is an important idea to this is sort of, you know, the uniqueness of the science and innovation space, which is that I think innovation policy can't be decoupled from creative destruction, to use a Schumpeterian term. And creative destruction is a threat to sort of the incumbents, like, and now that's Apple, Google, Facebook, whoever. Uh, before it was you know the telecoms and the other companies before them, and you know, but it, you're always faced with this, you know, politically connected, powerful, moneyed incumbents uh, responding to sort of the newcomers who threaten to displace them. And those people are gonna try and use government institutions to do that for them, right? And maybe that's hiring the staff directors of the Energy and Commerce Committee or various other mechanisms, but they're gonna, you know, spend lots of money they're gonna outspend all of what Congress spends on itself to sort of convince them that, you know, they need to write the regulation in this way versus that way that benefits them and keep out the other guys. You know, they saw the same thing. Uber comes in, the taxi cartels wanna kick them out. We need to have we need to have our institutions be resistant to that, and in order for them to be resistant to that, uh, you know, they need to have the incentives and and staff capacity, and not you know dividing staff attention over too many things. But they also need to have the expertise to know what the outcome of like different policy or legislative approaches is, and if they don't have that, they're more often than not just going to get that answer from the you know lobbyists that are come come and talk to them who.
0: You know, often were their predecessor in the job they have. I find just a touch ironic. We were a room full of tech policy experts of um, various issues of expertise and whatnot. um, Talking about how uh, Congress should pay people like us more and not come. I mean, we're all we're all in external organizations, right? We're we're not K Street types, right? But we're all. Or go to the hill to talk. We go to the hill to talk about these things, right? So, I mean, is this just something that benefits people like us?
3: So everyone is entitled to their own opinion, right? And we all get paid for our opinions and our expertise, but we're not entitled to our own set of facts. And you need a fact-finding entity who can say, this is what the landscape is. This is what's true. This is what's happened in the past. If you do this, this is what's happened. You need people that work for you that you can trust because you know, I, I I hope that they trust me when I when I come in the door, but they shouldn't, because I reflect a perspective and we all reflect different perspectives. And how are they going to sort that? I mean, they can sort it based on who they like. They can sort it based on, well, maybe they'll give me a job after after I'm working there. Maybe they'll sort it based on ideology. But what you want under all of whatever mechanism that they use to sort is there has to be a common understanding of the way the world is and the way that it works.
0: So how do you reflect that in your – if if Congress resurrected the OTA, um, how would you get that reflected in the mission of the OTA?
1: So the, the sort of thing about the OTA is they, they defunded it. Uh, in 1995, but the, the original statute still exists. So, the conversation that's going on now is sort of turning on the sort of funding spigot to restart it. Um, and in fact, just today, Daniel and I were following the House Appropriations hearing, where they voted out the uh, subcommittee bill out of the full committee, which has six million in funding for this office. Which you know sounds like a lot of money to you or I, but in the grand context of the federal government, as we were saying, is not actually a lot of money. Um, and so, remind me, you're you're asking how would this entity plug
0: into this conversation? Right. So, like, t- take the Congressional Budget Office, which yeah. in theory is supposed to be policy neutral. It's not supposed to say whether a policy is good or bad. It's just supposed to say how much it'll cost. It's supposed to be you know, nonpartisan. And
2: yet it is treated as having the effect of deciding whether a given policy is a good idea or not.
0: So, there's that. And, and folks will always complain based on whether the score the CBO score hurts them or helps them. Well, this right. time they're not being, I mean, so like right. ostensibly so, the CBO is set up to be nonpartisan, policy neutral. In practice, it, it's not how it gets perceived.
1: So first, I guess I think we need to do like an inception down another another layer and nerdy details to talk about sort of how the governance of, of the OTA works. Um, they have a sort of a unique structure, even among congressional support agencies, which is that... Is a bipartisan, bicameral oversight board that functions like a joint committee, like the joint committee on the library that itself is sort of dysfunctional and never meets. But that's another that's another conversation. Um, and so there would be, you know, six members from the Senate, six members from the House, Democrat, Republican. They'd get together. They decide, you know, this person will be the director. The director will hire the staff. Uh, And then it does these sort of big reports. And the report process is sort of like requesting a GAO report. So OTA, like GAO, is primarily oriented to serve congressional committees, not your rank and file uh, personal office staff. And so committees will get together and, you know, they'll ask for... An analysis on this particular issue, there'll be a back and forth with the uh, OTA staff, they'll talk to other committees of jurisdiction, they'll talk to the House, they'll talk to the Senate, then they'll come up with a scope, this will go to the oversight board, the oversight board will, you know, rank it among all the other requests they get and decide to proceed with it. It'll go, there'll be, a, you know, an expert panel that helps with the study design. There'll be staff brought in from internal from OTA, and then they'll bring in project-based contractors from industry and academia to work on it. They'll often be uh, public stakeholder workshops with experts, formal and informal peer review as part of the process. It's a pretty robust process. So, you know, it's you know people from all different academic disciplines. You'll have an economist, you'll have a software engineer, depending on what the report is, you'll have a different mix of people. And, you know, a year, year and a half later, they'll produce, produce this big report that typically would have these sort of sets of options of how you approach the problem, what the tradeoffs are from, you know, from an economic lens, from a technical lens and so on. Uh, and then this would have to be typically approved by the oversight board itself. So it has sort of bipartisan governance on on both ends of its products. So I think that helps. So it's a, it's an advisory role rather. It's not right. so rule setting. It's not designed yeah, to be meeting. like heritage action and say, this is the thing you should vote for. It's designed to say, here's what the factual landscape is. And here are the sort of trade off if you do this thing versus that thing. Uh, and then it's up to you, people who are actually elected, to make the value judgments about what the policy is, right? Maybe, you know, you can say, uh, you know, I was on a panel with someone who's saying, well, you know, we need expertise in Congress because... They'll see that climate change is real, and then obviously the Green New Deal is the thing we need to do. And I was like, well, the role of expertise ideally is not telling you to vote for the Green New Deal. It's telling you, you know, that the earth is warming by this percentage or not, right? It's worth it's saying that if you build a mandatory encryption backdoor, that you will have systemic cybersecurity risks and, you know, iPhone sales in Europe will go down probably by this amount, right? And those are important things for lawmakers to understand rather than just sort of being hand wavy about what these deals are, because these details are
0: often multi-billion dollar consequences. So you mentioned that it was already already set up like that. Previously, we just defunded. I mean, it's already got a kind of a charter. It has a charter, yeah. Um, The reason why it was defunded, my understanding is, and there was a great article that uh, you shared on Twitter by uh, Adam Kuyper for the New Atlantis. Kind of about the history of the OTA, mm-hmm. and it got defunded in part because of lingering Republican uh, uh, distrust of the OTA because of its handling of like uh, the Star Wars, Star Wars program yeah. and the Reagan administration missile defense. They they felt like it had become a kind of the personal uh, uh, tutelage of uh, Senator Ken- Ted Kennedy in the right. late seventies and eighties. Yeah. Like, how do you prevent? I mean, that was a problem then. Sure, it was not perceived as bipartisan, as nonpartisan, as policy neutral? How do you prevent it? Since it was a problem then, how do you prevent it from being a problem now?
1: So I think there are certainly fair criticisms of the OTA over its years, particularly in the 70s. There were you know, serious stumbles to them getting set up and having a good reputation. I think by the 80s and 90s, they had overcome a lot of that, built a, a you know pretty solid neutral reputation among and its staunch defenders who are Republicans as well as Democrats. Um, now, there, was a, you know, there were a couple of reports in the mid-'80s, as, as you mentioned, criticizing Star Wars. One of them, which is, I think, the most famous, was done by Ash Carter, who would go on to be Secretary of Defense. Um, and it was uh, actually a report that was out of their normal kind of uh, technology assessment methodology. It was driven by, I think, just him, maybe a couple of other analysts didn't have to go through approval by the Oversight Board. Um, and, you know, basically said this sort of Reagan administration idea of having lasers in space that could shoot down missiles was either you know too costly or technically infeasible, and it seems like the consensus on that is that they were probably right about that. Even if, um, you know, even if you didn't want to maybe sort of show your cards to to the Russians that that was the case, right? Maybe this is a bluff you're doing, but you're still talking about spending an obscene amount of money on. Space lasers that may or may not work. So it's sort of a, you know, a funny thing that that's the worst people criticize them for. Um, The other thing I think is some of the like anti-conserve, you know, sort of the partisan bias, I think, is overblown. Um, if you look at the like ni- you know ninety five they did a bunch of appropriations hearings on this question, and you know this is the context here is that Republicans are coming up out of the republican revolution they 're retaking the House for the first time in nearly fifty years I think um, Gingrich becomes the feature of the House they run on the contract for America, which is all about sort of cutting waste fraud and abuse they 're running on you know the House being a democratic stronghold that has all kinds of excesses, so they cut ice deliveries and all these other things. And one of their kind of mottos at the time was cut Congress first. So the idea is we come in, we do these symbolic cuts, and they didn't just get rid of OTA, they slashed GAO, they tried to slash CRS, they tried to, you know, do all kinds of things. And part of that was also trying to, I think, consolidate more power with with congressional leadership and away from committees, which used to be sort of you know strong rivals for the power of like the speaker or
0: majority leader. Yeah, that's right. A good point.
1: And OTA was killed, I think, for really sort of immediate practical reasons in that time. Part of it was their motto. They want to have a symbolic cut. And you see that reflected in the testimony at the time. Um, but they also, you know, were the smallest of the legislative branch support agencies uh, with a budget of around 22 million um they were not necessary to day-to-day operations since they primarily served committee chairs. And so, you know, if you want a scalp, that's an easy yeah, scalp yeah. to take. And it also has the added benefit of taking information or power away from committees and making that so Towards that it can the speaker. be controlled yeah. by the speaker more easily.
2: Given how committees work today, their their current status, if you brought back the OTA wouldn't it be more an organ of congressional leadership than it was Hmm. in the past? Committees are far less independent today.
1: Yeah, they certainly are. And I think you'd certainly have more problems around sort of politicization in general. And, you know, this raises questions for... You know, it's governance structure.
3: Uh, Daniel, you look at me like you have thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to significantly rethink its governance structure. But and look, we've got experience with this. We have experience with this. You know, I said I was at CRS and CRS has significant management problems, uh, but they're not they don't have this partisan bias view of, like of, of their work. And GAO is the same thing. GAO goes and it will rip apart things. People don't think of GAO reports as being, you know, left leaning or right leaning. Like so, so
1: although they were criticized for that in the '90s too, around the same time.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, as you indicate, like a lot of that criticism at the time, it was not about the work that they were doing. It was about, you know, bring, pulling down the smallest of the herd uh, to dem- You know, this is this is what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation that, um, you know, the fight over the twenty-seven or twenty-nine million dollars out of this, you know, it's for show. It's for the people back home. It's because they think that Americans are stupid. And we need to be smart in that. We need to realize that investing in things that are actually good for us is actually the right thing to do uh, and to not sort of fall for the head fake.
0: You you pick off the $6 million antelope and avoid going after the, well, I mean, major entitlement reform that would save very large sums. Or
3: the Pentagon. Well,
0: we'll I'll include them under the entitlement, even though it's not technically how it's listed on the budget. (laughs)
2: Liberal (laughs) class theory.
1: Even, yeah. i mean even the this small antelope um there was a you know a strong kind of resistance to you know leadership trying to kill it even among republicans they almost uh they so they voted in the House to preserve it and move its functions under the library and then it sort of barely failed in in the Senate um you know when the, so they did sort of a you know leadership got involved and started to whip votes on it but there was you know pretty substantial uh, Republican support for it even back then
3: right in, in in sort of where we are now so the plan at least as I understand the plan and you know they don't always consult me on all the plans but as I understand it uh, the plan is as follows one you get sort of a rump OTA going so you hire the leadership you get the board if it's appropriate and you say all right folks you're back um let's look at our structure over the next two years and figure out how to design something that is going to work in the modern era. And that OTA's role will be engaged in foresight. It's looking forward, trying to figure out what needs to be done, the the role that it played before. And at the same time, we're going to have a parallel institution over at GAO, which is called the STAA. And Zach, help me. I can never remember what the A's stand for.
1: It's uh, Science Technology Assessment Analytics. Sorry to put you on the spot, but thank you. (laughs) Hold on.
3: In the the STA, (laughs) which sounds Dutch or something, but it's not. uh, The STAA, its job is to engage in oversight of review. It's, it's It's the analysis of what's happened before and making the types of recommendations that are more befitting of GAO's culture. And this perspective is reflected... I know everyone's going to rush home and read the subcommittee report, but it's it's reflected in there that they want them to play these different types of roles, right. and to us, you know, to address the question of, well, what does a modern office of technology assessment look like? They're going to talk to all of us, and they're going to get a report from the National Academy of Public Administration uh, on Halloween or or thereabouts this year that will have recommendations about how to make this thing a real thing in the way that it avoids problems of politicization, that it doesn't take too long, that it doesn't have uh, captured by the committees, that it supports the chambers, and that it basically is a modern version. So think of it as like a reboot, right? Like, you know, like all your favorite shows are coming back. Well, you know, OTA is back as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can certainly talk all day about sort of the details of the SDAA strategic plan, but I feel like the listeners of the show would not appreciate that. The Uh, OTA, people often talk about it as a panacea to fix everything wrong with Congress on science and technology, and I don't think it should be viewed that way at all. The the mechanism of technology assessment that we talked about, again, primarily serves committees. It's a particular kind of very robust, very authoritative, and long analysis that is you know, very useful to Congress, but different than what they can already do in just sort of calling up the top top academic at a certain field or the head of a company. Or I'm sure, that, you know, if you're the Energy and Commerce Committee, you can get a hold of whoever you need to get a hold of at Apple and they're going to take your call, right? And, or you can get a hold of whoever it is at, at MIT and they're going to take your call. Um, but that's different, you know, the sort of off the cuff, you know, response of an expert is different than the sort of process of, you know, creating an authoritative document and analysis. And I think that's important. But there's also, you know, that's not useful for every scenario, you need the Congressional Research Service to do, you know, the shorter form cliff notes analysis, the kind of stuff that'll prep you, you know, ahead of a hearing with Mark Zuckerberg. As you said, you need GAO to do the sort of oversight functions, how are federal agencies using technology? Are they doing it in a responsible way? How do we prevent another F-35? How do we integrate risk assessment into the criminal justice system? These are all of the things that, you know, GAO is good at. And then personal offices, people still need to have their own experts who are, you know, working for them and accountable accountable for them on the sort of day-to-day
2: policy workload. On on the question of, of experts and really the pipeline of folks who would be working at this revived OTA, what does that look like and are there ideological concerns there when we look at the general state yep. of the academy vis-a-vis tech? Mm-hmm. It's one thing for someone to call up Shoshana Zuboff and get a quote from her. It's another when she's given the capital T imprinter of truth Um and – her getting that gives me night sweats.
1: Well, yeah, I think that's definitely a concern. I mean, there was a ninety-three self-assessment at OTA uh, by their staff, and one of the there was a minority view, but one of the concerns raised was that they too often, uh, you know, look towards federal intervention rather than delegating to the states or looking at market solutions. And yeah, you know, there's certainly times in their reports where they speak favorably of. of market solutions or, or, you know, private sector, you know, uh, his ability to sort of resolve things. But, you know, I think that is a reasonable concern to have for from a center right perspective. The academy does lean very left and you are talking about sort of stocking this uh, with people from the academy. However, I think that's. Much less significant of a problem than flying blind on science and technology policy.
3: My experience has not been that engineers as a whole tend to 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 lean left uh, when it comes to some of these questions. But sort of putting that aside, uh, so I you know this will be the last time I say that you know I, when I worked at CRS, you know there were people from a wide variety of perspectives. Uh, there was a multi-layer review process, your boss, then department head, and then the front office and so on and so forth. Uh, the agency for 30 years was headed by a Reagan uh, appointee, uh, believe it or not. Uh, and um, the results were that there was enough of a scrubbing that by the time whatever document got out the door, the vast majority of the time, you couldn't detect any leanings in it. I mean, I, I almost think that they were the documents are too scrubbed. That you lose that nowadays Runs. you you lose some of the contact. Like when I was writing them, I would put things in the footnotes because I figured that someone's got to read the footnote somewhere. <laughs> and and it wasn't to suggest a solution, right? It wasn't to say this is right or this is wrong, but it was to say that like there is more here than I'm able to say, and you need to engage with this more deeply. Right. Uh, and I and I think the same for for OTA. You need to have all the views respected, all of them reflected in the room. Um, as it goes through this process of making recommendations, um, and there is no, like, I mean, to your point, there is no capital T truth, right? There is no one who stands apart from the world who can look down at it and say, this is right and and this is wrong. But we have to get as close an approximation as we can get, knowing that we can have multiple assessments and multiple views on these over times with different perspectives from folks inside the government and out. And that will push us to generally be more likely to get the right policy than the wrong policy.
1: You have a big process that's sort of creating many opportunities for many stakeholders to weigh in, whether that's at the sort of bipartisan oversight board, the peer review panel, the panel that structures the thing, the you know, OTA director, the six different, you know, experts who are working on the study itself. There's you know, at some ways, you have to sort of design a process in a way that sort of yields outcomes that are, you know, that minimize bias. Um, and I think they did a pretty good job of that, if you look back at a lot of the old OTA reports. And I certainly don't think that this is a un- this is a problem that would be, you know, uniquely bad for Congress versus the rest of the federal government or even, you know, the think tank world or entities like the National Academies, which do a lot of these kinds of analysis now.
3: And one other thing that's a little different than what we had before uh, is that when OTA was originally created, it was in the space of massive democratic control of all aspects of government. This, that is not the world that we live in now. So, so at least in that context, like, it, it, you know, it's Democrats and Republicans coming together from the different ideological backgrounds that they have. So it's not. It it it's not the there there isn't you know you're not going to see Nancy Pelosi handpick all the members of OTA based upon the crack staff of like people that are waiting in the rings to go and like dominate government like that is that is not a thing that's going to happen.
0: The the world of today is very different than 1972 when you had kind of you know democratic dominance for the better in part Congress, of Congress in right. yeah 15 years. I mean yeah 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 yeah, yeah Republican yeah. president but.
1: I think, you know, when you're looking at like fiefdoms to hand out in Congress, this is not like one that's high on the list. It's, it's more ones that you're gonna, you know, get people who are genuinely interested in these issues and the, the handful of, you know, PhD, you know, physicists and other
3: experts, right? Right. And everyone's gonna be watching. Like, I mean, there are all these people with significant vested interests, whether it's in industry or in civil society or in academia or elsewhere, who are all gonna be looking very closely at whether this is, this is, um, Uh, reaching results that they view are fair, and they're going to push back, and that's fine. So what we
2: talked about agenda setting at at the beginning of this episode, what issues do you see as currently underdeveloped or underappreciated within the legislature that the OTA might aid in raising both awareness and intimate knowledge of?
1: Well, a lot of what OTA is designed to do is respond to things that you know, committees or, you know, the main committees for science and technology you're interested in. So it's, you know, structured in a way that isn't meant to really set the agenda, but to sort of, you know, respond execute and, and yeah, respond, yeah, yeah. right? Um, But I know, uh, you know, a lot of members who have talked about reviving this office have been interested in issues like artificial intelligence and cryptocurrencies and cybersecurity and, you know, a whole host of different issues. And I think it's also important to mention that, we talk about this has got the word technology in its name, and so you think, oh, this is you know privacy and stuff that Google cares about. But it's not. It's not like the original mandate is sort of innovation in in a broad lens. It's energy, environment, health, and a lot of its you know big successes were outside of the domain of of pure information technology, uh, and in the realm of you know, you know all kinds of other issues and. You know, if you look at some of the case studies of its effect, it helped, you know, modernize the Social Security Administration's early IT systems. It helped kill some public-private boondoggles like the Synthetic Fuels Corporation, which was a sort of cylindra of the time. Uh, It helped uh, with, you know, promote spectrum auctions and a number of these other kind of niche issues that are, you know, if you add them all up or, you know, many times in excess of the tiny budget that you're spending to sort of get this office right it's a a pretty you know cheap expenditure in the context of the federal government and the downside i think of of getting these issues wrong in innovation policy and making it ins- creating institutions that are are more vulnerable to incumbent pressures and regulatory capture i think it's a, it's e- an easy insurance policy to justify.
2: We think of then medical devices falling within this. What about uh, defense technology?
0: Yeah, did quite a bit of that while I got in trouble for some <laughs> defense space lasers. You know, <laughs> that's, right. Yeah, that's right. Well, guys, I think that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Daniel, Zach, really appreciate your time. And until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.